Good morning, and good to see you. And if we haven't met, my name is Brian Haybig, and that was Jake Patton, who was leading us in worship. We're glad you're here. And just to let you know what we're doing as far as the sermons for the foreseeable future, we're looking at the Ten Commandments this fall. We just started last week, and, uh, and actually last week we were in the New Testament. We looked at Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, uh, really early on in the Sermon on the Mount, which is at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He talks explicitly about the law and the prophets, and he just could not have been clearer that his understanding of what he came to do was that he did not come to make the law and the prophets go away. I mean, we could say for our purposes in our language, Jesus says, I did not come to neutralize the Old Testament. I did not come to make the Old Testament go away and be null and void. So for our purposes, that means as we're looking at the Ten Commandments, this is not a waste of time. This is valuable for people to do 2,000 years after Jesus because the law endures. So we're really, I want to start in the commandments themselves. So we'll be now in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Exodus 20 for uh, for a while. Exodus 20, and we're going to start in verse 1. You know, let me just say this. And for somebody listening uh, maybe to this on the, on the podcast, they're at a little bit of a disadvantage because they can't see how my coat looks after I got it dry cleaned. But also, finally, after sweating in it the last four weeks. But, now, but, uh, but they didn't hear the liturgy that led up to this point. You know, we, it, before we confessed our sins, we heard the reading of what Mount Sinai looked like as the people came to it. And it just terrified them. Terrified them. And, you know, it's it's that thing of like, we want God to speak to us. We want God to speak to us. We've been brought out of Egypt, but we want God to speak to us. And then he spoke, and it terrified them. And they said, Moses, you go talk to him, and we'll do whatever he says. And then after we confessed our sins in our worship, we heard from Hebrews. And you've got the writer to Hebrews saying, look, you're not a people who've come to this fearful mountain of fire and gloom and darkness. But you've been brought to Mount Zion. You've been brought to the place where the angels feast and dance and celebrate and sing. You've been brought there because blood's been sprinkled on you and you're clean. Well, I I want us to think about the people who are hearing the Ten Commandments for the first time. And it's not to say that, well, it was more for them than it is for us. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the first people who heard it, they they didn't hear it in print. They heard it in real time verbally. They heard the audio and they saw the video. Ex-slaves. And this is going to come up some more on this ser- in this series that the people of Israel had been slaves for hundreds of years. And it was so bad and it was so hard on them that for the rest of the Old Testament, when people refer back to it, they'll call it the iron furnace. Can't be good. Not, not what a mother would want for her child. That I have a life of making bricks, and I've brought this little, uh, this little boy, this little girl into the world, and he or she is going to have a life of making bricks or building things for Pharaoh or whatever. These are ex, very recent ex-slaves at the foot of this mountain. What is the first thing God wants them to hear? And I really want you to think about it in those terms because when you go to the New Testament, one of the, the writers... Uh, of a New Testament book, James, 
Not once but twice, when he refers to the commandments, he calls them the law of liberty, the law of freedom, the law of emancipation for ex-slaves. Believers in Jesus Christ in the New Testament are described as ex-slaves brought out of slavery. What did these ex-slaves need to hear first? What do ex-slaves need to hear first now? Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I heard a guy recently, uh, or saw a video of a guy giving a speech. It was a TED Talk, if that means anything to you. And it was a TED Talk about the benefits of taking cold showers which I largely have not implemented in my own life thus far, and did not implement this morning. But uh, he talked about how this, how this came into his life. He, he, uh, he was a budding entrepreneur. He had all these great ideas, and there was a business that he wanted to start and things he wanted to try. And some, friend of, some friends of his knew a, a guy who really was a very uh, accomplished entrepreneur, had really had done it, started businesses, implemented it, Said you ought to get together with him, go get a you know, go get a meal and, and pick his brain. So he set up a meeting with this guy, and he told him about his ideas, like what he wanted to do, his dream, even kind of the business plan he had somewhat hammered out, but had not yet implemented. And the guy asked him, "So why haven't you done this yet?" And he, you know, he gave him his reasons, just about the the season of life he was in, and feeling like he needed to finish some other things first, and, and the but the finances of it, the cost of it. And the guy said, okay, I hear you, but why have you not started this business yet? He asked him the same question. So he gave the same answer again. I'm at the season of life, money, blah, blah, blah. And this guy said, okay, look, I think I know what I, you need to do. Do this for me. For the next 30 days, in the morning, every day, take a cold shower. And that was that. So he goes home and he thought, well, I asked the guy for advice, and that's his advice, so I guess, I guess I'll try it. So he wakes up the next morning and takes a cold shower, which, of course, was horrible. That's what cold showers do. They say, like, I'm here for you when you want me to be horrible. I will be horrible for you. So he takes a cold shower, hurts, doesn't like it, hates every second of it, gets out, and he said, maybe 30 seconds to a minute later, he's fine. So then tomorrow morning rolls around. Now, tomorrow, the, the, the second one was almost worse than the first. The first is like, this is going to be new. But then when you know what it's going to be like, it's worse. And he just feels all this resistance. Like, what is the stupidest idea? Why did this guy tell me to do this? Gets in, hates it, hates every second of it. Gets out 30 seconds to a minute later, he's fine. Third morning, fourth morning. And as he was, as he was telling his audience about this, he said, what I began to realize as I did this, that when I would face the prospect of one more of those showers, all these things would bubble up, all these fears. And this resistance to being uncomfortable, 
and wanting to put it off and say, well, I don't, I, I'll do a warm one now and I'll do the cold one tomorrow. I wanted, I wanted to delay it. And what I realized was all the impulses that were, that were keeping me from starting this new business and implementing these ideas were the very things that were bubbling up when it was time to take that cold shower. And I thought that was remarkable that that guy gave him that exercise, that, that it got up underneath the behaviors. The behavior was, I haven't started yet. The behavior is, I'm saying that I'm going to start it later. What's, um, what's up underneath it are fears, the unwillingness to be uncomfortable, wanting to put things off. The amazing thing to me about the beginning of the Ten Commandments is that they don't really begin with a command. They begin with God saying first who He is. And then the first command is not so much this ethical requirement to go out and do this particular behavior. The first command gets up underneath all the other behaviors and makes us look at why do I do what I do? Like why why would I break the other nine? I break the other nine because of I don't because I break the first one. So let's look at this. And, um, I, you know, maybe I could use these two sermon points for every single one of these commands, but I'm going to do it on this first one. The two points are going to be the commander and then the command. The first command. The commander and the command. Look at how this begins. And, and without getting into too much detail, people who really, um, real scholars of the ancient Near East, people that really know their stuff about... Um, have done the academic work of Old Testament study, will say that in surrounding cultures at this point in history, when two parties, especially when a ruler, when a king, made a covenant with a group of people, the format would be he would state his name, then the terms of the covenant, and then the blessings if you keep it, and the curses if you break it. And that is the format of the covenant that God makes with Israel, not saying he copied it from another culture, but God expressed it in terms they could understand. So it doesn't start with do this, do that. It starts with the, the king, with God. Now, let's look at a couple of things about that. His name and the relationship. What does he say? I am the Lord your God. Now, in, in the English translation, Lord is in all caps. And just so you'll know, when you, when you come in an English translation to that word, Lord in all caps, that's a translation, very important, not of a title. It's not a title like creator or redeemer. It's, that is our rendering of God's personal name, which in now, a, a real, you know, if you were reading from the Hebrew Bible, like, like a reading you might hear in a, a synagogue, you wouldn't even say the name that I'm about to say because it's regarded as so holy. You would say Adonai. But the way it's rendered, or the, the way it appears in Hebrew is Yahweh. Yahweh. It's hard to know where to begin on this name because it says so much. The name shows up almost immediately in the Bible, at the beginning of Genesis. It's all through the book of Genesis that Yahweh is the one doing all these things, that Yahweh is the one who's interacting with Noah and who sends the flood. 
and rescues Noah and his family. Yahweh is the one who's interacting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Same God. But it's not till the book of Exodus where we are where he says what his name means. And he first reveals it to Moses. All right, Moses, who's gone up on Mount Sinai, he says to him, look, I, I'm sending you to bring my people out of bondage. I've heard their cry. I'm sending you to bring them out. And, you know, Moses doesn't know that he's Moses. Like, Moses doesn't know that he's the Moses. So he says, well, I, what do I tell the Israelites when they say, well, who sent you to tell us that God is bringing us out of Egypt? God says, you tell them Yahweh. You tell them that my name is I am who I am. It's just virtually untranslatable. I am the creator who made you. I am the rescuer who rescues you when you cannot rescue yourself. I am all that I am. At every moment, in every action, I am all that I am. No diminishing, no adding. And I always will be who I am. I am and I will be Yahweh. That's his personal name. Like you have your name and my name is Brian. The commandments begin with God saying, that's who I am. I am Yahweh. And then he says this, I am the Lord, your God. Now, this comes up semi-regularly in sermons, the fact that, you know, in English, when you speak in the second person, in English, you can be singular or you can be plural. And of course, in the South, we've taken care of that with y'all. But you can be one you or you can be a group of you. Let me, now in Hebrew, it's not like that. In Hebrew, the forms are different. Let me ask you this. I'm not looking for a show of hands, but when, when you've got God speaking from Mount Sinai, this just fearful manifestation of God, and he says, I am the Lord your God to all these hundreds of thousands of people at the base of the mountain. Do you think he speaks in the singular or the plural? It's singular. And I think that must have been one of the reasons why it was so frightening. Is that Mount Sinai visually took on the form of something like a volcano. That dense smoke went up from it. It says like a brick kiln. Just think of just, just a, a factory stovepipe. That mountain wasn't like that before God came down. Smoke and cloud had enveloped the mountain. There's fire. There's a trumpet blast coming from an unseen trumpeter and lightning, and thunder, and the mountain itself is shaking. It terrified the Israelites because they're at the base of it. And the voice speaks and says this, I am Yahweh, your God. Like, to you, sir. To you, ma'am. To you, child. I am the Lord, your God. Extremely personal. That's his name. And then the relationship. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, again, I think this is going to come up more as we go through the commandments, but just the plight of being an Israelite before they were rescued was just terrible. I mean, what it, what it must have been like to be 
an Israelite wife, Israelite mother, to bring a child into the world and know that on the one hand, I have joy that we brought a, a, a child into the world. And to know that that child's life is going to be slavery, just like yours is. You know, the, the, the bricks that the Israelites were called to make for the Egyptians, that's at the beginning of Exodus, uh, somebody that's a, a scholar about these things, uh, you know, I, he pointed out that we, we tend to think of bricks like the bricks in this wall, you know, but very easily portable. The bricks that they made were more like what we would call cinder blocks. To make those and lift those and carry those under an Egyptian sun for hours and hours and hours, and there is no Sabbath. You do it every day. And God brings them to the base of the mountain and says, I am Yahweh, you, individual, your God. And I brought, not just you collectively, but I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you, literally, out of the house of slaves. That's who I am. Now, if these are the commandments... This is the commander. And something that we talked about last week when we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 5 is that Jesus, he not only says, I did not come to get rid of the law and the prophets. But he goes further and says, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Meaning, not only am I as a man going to be the embodiment of what it looks like to obey the commandments perfectly, which he did. And I'll say it again. That's really hopeful to me that the most obedient man who ever lived was not like a tight, super-religious, self-righteous, rigid person. most loving man who ever lived obeyed the commandments perfectly. He manifested love by obeying God's commandments. But he says, I've come to fulfill them, not just by obeying them, but the commandments ultimately find their fulfillment in me. And we quoted the Apostle Paul from the New Testament. He says that Christ is the end of the law, not the ending of the command so that they go away. He is the end of the road that the commandment should take you to. They should get you to Jesus. And I want that to kick in right now and and start applying that right now. Um, Think about this. In the Gospel of John... Jesus comes along, and he's saying things like this to to Israelites, to the Jews. He says, I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am, I am, I am. And, and maybe the ultimate example is he gets into a real back and forth in John chapter 8 with the, with the Jewish crowd, especially religious leaders. And he says, Abraham saw me and he was glad. Abraham saw my day and he was very glad about it. And they say, you're not even 50 years old yet and you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus says... Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
and they picked up stones to stone him. Now, they didn't stone people for being nuts. Being crazy was not a capital offense, but blasphemy was. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is saying, as a man physically standing there in Judea, I am Yahweh. And no, anytime you've heard that, you know, I think Jesus, I think he was a great teacher. I don't think he's God. No great teacher would ever say, I am Yahweh. That would be blasphemy with a high hand. Let's be theological. Jesus is presented in the New Testament. This is, this is implicit in the Law and the Prophets, but it is explicit in the New Testament. Jesus is given to us as Yahweh in the flesh. You know, we're going to sing about that when Christmas comes. And we sing about it at other times too. But like when we have lessons and carols, one of the hymns that we always sing is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And one of the verses of that Christmas hymn says, O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height uh, in ancient times once gave the law in cloud and majesty and awe. What is it saying? Is that Yahweh, who gave the law at Mount Sinai, come to us as one of us? And that's how the New Testament presents him. Think about this. You know, the way God reveals Himself at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out. The reason there was an exodus was not because of you. You came out, but the reason there was an exodus is because of me rescuing you and bringing you out. You look in the New Testament. This is recorded several times that Jesus one day, He takes Peter and James and John... Sorry, this is giving me fits. I knew this Britney Spears microphone would come to haunt me one day. It's getting its revenge on all my jokes about it. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the top of a, interestingly, a mountain. And he begins to shine like the sun. He doesn't look like a Jewish peasant. Shines like the sun. And two men appear. Moses and Elijah. Moses, the man ultimately identified with the law. And Elijah, considered by many to be the premier, what? Prophet. So here you've got the law and the prophets, not in writing, but in person. And I don't want to preach a second sermon about that passage. Well, I kind of do, but like, but God audibly says to Peter, James, and John, They are seeing, I I don't know how to convey this, what this would be like. For anybody, but especially with a Jewish upbringing, they're seeing Moses and Elijah. That's what they look like. There they are. Peter says, let's make little booths where we can all live up here and be together. God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah are with you, and you need to listen to my son. But the Gospel of Luke records this great little detail. It says that, Moses and Elijah 
talked with Jesus about his, and in English we translate it his departure, but in Greek they discussed with him his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And you realize what Luke is saying. Moses and Elijah, as Yahweh in the flesh is on the mountain, they appear with him and they talk with him. You're about to do the great exodus. You know, Moses, you used him to lead the people out of Egypt in slavery. But you're about to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to lead your people definitively out of their slavery to sin. Yahweh on the mountain is the Jesus that we get in the New Testament. He is the commander. What's the command? Again, it's in the singular. He, it's not, um, y'all shall have no other gods before me, although that's true. But it's you and you and you and you in your real life, in public and in private, on your outside and on your inside, you shall have no other gods before me. Again, that covers so much ground, but, but a couple of things here. When he says no other gods, if you're not careful, what you can picture is don't make any statues of any other deities and weird shrines and weird temples and do weird other religions. Just worship me. That is true. Don't make shrines of other gods and don't make statues of other gods. But he's really saying this. No, nothing and no one besides me is to be ultimate on your insides. You know, what, what, what is an idol? An idol is when you take a good thing it can be work. It can be a significant other, person you're in love with. It can be um, a friendship. It can be possessions. The possessions are not inherently evil. It can be, any, it can be a good thing. It's when you take a good thing in creation and you make it ultimate. You can do it with your child. You can make your family ultimate. Family is a wonderful thing until you worship it. And then it starts to punish you because it can't sustain being your God. Only God can really be your God. And you've got from the mountain, before God tells you some particular behavior saying, on your individual insides, you must have no other gods. And he uses this expression, before me. And the best scholarship that I look, looked at, people that really know their Hebrews, said that's not so much saying you must make me first in your life of all the other things that are ultimate in your life, that I've got to be just a little bit more ultimate than everything else. He's saying, don't in front of me, you know, before me in my presence, don't have any other ultimate allegiances except me. Have no other gods in my presence before my eyes, really in your heart that you give your life to. I mean, you think about this. You think about it really is the language. And there's other places where this shows itself. It's the language of marriage. When, uh, when a groom makes vows at his wedding and says that, um, you know, I'm taking this woman and forsaking all others. On the one hand, that doesn't mean, you know, I'm just, I'm never going to interact with any other female for the rest of my life. Not doable. 
But it, it also means it's not like, well, she's my, my, she's my number one romantic interest in front of two, three, four, and five. No. No other woman gets me like she does. No one else gets the honor, the cherishing, the commitment, the knowing who I actually am, the opening up, the, the intimacy physically and emotionally. There's no other woman with whom I am one flesh. No other woman. That God is saying, you've got these good things in my creation, but I I'm not commanding you make me number one in your life. I'm saying do, and I, okay, I'm not trying to be unnecessarily provocative, but let's at least be as earthy as the Bible is. When, when God depicts what it's like when we run after other gods, he calls it adultery and whoring. God is saying on, in the real control center of your life where you really do your real life, you really feel and plan, and really think, and process, and respond, and decide. In there, do not take your clothes off with anything or anyone else but me. I want you to only be intimate in that way with me. I, you know, I, I was thinking about, for many of us, because we don't know the Bible well, and we don't know the Old Testament typically as well as we know the New Testament if we know something about the Bible. That, you know, this is just such a classic Old Testament passage. It's, you know, there's a mountain and there's fire and there's all the people and, you know, the wilderness. And it just, it just feels and sounds like the Old Testament. Boy, here's this big, powerful, scary God. And we don't hear how God actually talks to his people. When he says, I am the Lord your God. When, I, when he says, I am Yahweh, your God, he is saying, I love you. And you didn't earn my love. I'm not over a barrel to love you. But I don't ever want you to wonder if I love you. I am the God who loves you. Listen to, to what Moses wrote at the end of the time in the wilderness. So like 40 years after Sinai, he says this. And now, Israel, this is Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you <clears throat> but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him? What does God want from you? He wants you to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments. And then a little bit later, he says this. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And when Moses says, you shall hold fast to God, he uses the same Hebrew verb that's used of the very first marriage of Adam and Eve. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife. Only give his life to her. Only be intimate publicly and privately with her. And Moses says, look, what, what is it God wants? And the older I get, I find passages like this more and more helpful. Just kind of 30,000 foot view, get up over the minutia. What's the big thing that God wants? He wants you to love him and hold fast to him. That is the first commandment. 
And for our purposes, I want you to think about what we're saying is the number one thing we need to do is to know God and in particular to know Jesus. Just a few weeks ago, we studied Jesus saying that. Right before he's arrested, Jesus prays to the Father. And some of the disciples are there and they hear him. John records it. Now, Jesus doesn't give a lot of definitions. But in this prayer, Jesus says this. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Eternal life is to know God, in particular, to know Yahweh in the flesh, Jesus himself. And here's what that means. The way we actually change, the way we become the people, not so much that I've designed that I want to be, and there is an entire cottage industry of books about you being the you that you've decided you're going to design yourself to be. I mean, I've read some of the books. I'm not talking about that. But the way we really change and become the people that God wants us to be. And he says all through the Old Testament, I'm commanding these things for your good. I want it to go well for you. Do these commandments so that it'll go well for you. How do you become that? Is it just behavior modification? And here's the reality. If Jesus Christ is not the ultimate allegiance on our real insides, then all we're going to engage in is behavior modification. I remember one time that I just I saw that visually play out in front of me. I knew a guy when I was a campus minister, and when I, he was, when I stepped into this campus ministry, he was very involved and very fired up, and then he just really went off the rails. And when I say went off the rails, he, he became addicted to cocaine. And he went into rehab, came out, I so thankful he did, and the next time I saw him, he was completely gaunt. And he had started swimming. But he had taken up swimming with, with an addict's heart. And it was amazing to see that, okay, if it's between being addicted to cocaine or swimming, I guess I'd rather you be addicted to swimming. But behavior modification, but his insides essentially were those of an addict. That I take something and I just do it to the nth degree to make me okay. That's all of us. Jesus did not come to earth. Yahweh did not take on human flesh to prop up the life that we've already decided that we're going to craft for ourselves. Like, I'm going to be this high-performing, super-cranker that everybody thinks is omnicompetent and sharp and has a cute house and gets along with all kinds of people and, and then gets to go to heaven because Jesus helps me out. That's not why he came. It's not to fit in and support you in your other ultimate allegiances. He came in to be the ultimate allegiance. This may sound like a weird thing to say. I'll even put it this way. He doesn't even want Christianity to be ultimate. He doesn't want all the Christian things that we're going to do for him to be ultimate. He is to be ultimate, and all that we do flows out of that. And if you're left right now saying, how do I will myself to love him more than anybody or anything? 
what does the New Testament say? We love him because why? Because we focused. <laughs> we love him because we doubled down. We love him because he first loved us. I mean, for 2,000 years, God has blessed people to be blown away over and over and over that you, Yahweh, our God, our Creator, you became man. You kept the law perfectly. And then you got crushed. Your life was the masterpiece. And the masterpiece was crushed because you were taking my place. You were living a life that I would get credit for and you got credit for how I live. That's how you learn how to love Jesus. I mean, and that means that as we look at our lives, maybe the first thing to pray is not so much, help me tell the truth. I keep bending the truth. I keep telling lies. Help me to tell the truth. It's a great thing to pray about telling the truth. But up underneath that is what? Lord, I want to know you and love you and be so secure in you that I don't have to bend the truth to make someone like me because I know I have your love. Let me end with this. And uh, this is maybe the most boring way possible to end a sermon, but this is uh, about a paper that I wrote in college. Wow. Tell us more, Brian. Sure, I will. Sophomore, undergrad, Mississippi State, English class, and um, we were given several options for writing a paper, and I chose a, a sonnet this poem by John Donne, and you may have heard of it, but it's called Batter My Heart, Three-Personed God. Batter my, my, like, hit, strike, knock around, my heart, three-personed God. And I'm not going to read the whole poem because it is kind of high threshold, but, but listen, listen to the end of it. By John Donne, he says, Dearly, I love you. And I would be loved fain, but I am betrothed under your enemy. I'm engaged to someone else. Divorce me. Untie or break that knot again. Take me to you. Imprison me. For I, now get this, except you enthrall me, never shall be free. Nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. And to this day, almost 30 years later, I remember what my professor wrote on my paper. I think I did pretty good on the paper, but he said, you are too timid in your conclusions. Because I was kind of tiptoeing around how powerful the language is. And my professor, who was very openly non-Christian, said, he is, the poet is asking God to ravish him. The only way I'll be pure is if you ravish me. Divorce me from my bad loves. Draw me to yourself. That's a great way to pray. Lord Jesus, be the great lover of my heart so that I divorce these bad gods. Everything else flows from that. All, all other change flows from that. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we would be shown who you actually are, that you would enable us to see you with the eyes of faith, not physically at the mountain, but by faith to see you in the person and work of your Son, Jesus, and that you would ravish us, that you would captivate us, that you would enthrall us, that it would make all our other loves and allegiances seem so ridiculous in comparison that we turn back to you. Lord, be our God not only on paper, but be God on our insides. Lord Jesus Christ, may we eat your flesh and drink your blood. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.